Well, let's turn our Bibles to John chapter 13. At some point, at some point in uh, <clears throat> a person's life, when you get to my age, you have to mention the 1960s. <clears throat> in the 1960s, we personally invented rock music. It was our thing. We invented it. We deserve the praise. My generation, it would be nowhere without my generation. We were the people. And uh, it, wasn't a good, it wasn't a good time for clothes, uh, I have to say. Uh, we were still struggling. In fact, I don't think there are any photographs of what I was wearing in those days. <laughs> for that, I am very grateful because it would destroy my reputation. Uh, whatever my reputation is. But <clears throat> one of the things that happened in the middle of the 1960s, or yeah, the middle of the 1960s, when I was about one, was that we had a movement called the Jesus Movement. The Jesus Movement started over in California and California and came across here and came across the Atlantic and hit Britain and it came to Scotland. Now, not very much happened in Scotland, so anything. Anything that came into Scotland with an American accent was usually, you know, you were, you were really, uh, just, it just felt as if you know, these exotic, strange American people were coming. And they came to Scotland and they, they came with this whole new thing that they were doing, this uh, Jesus movement thing. When I was uh, at school, before the Jesus movement hit, we, we used to struggle, or people used to struggle to, to show... To, to indicate to other people that they were Christians. Some of the boys used to wear badges. I never wore one, but they wore a green badge, and I remember the words on the badge were, Jesus saves. The boys in my class at school used to laugh at the badge and say, is it with the Bank of Scotland or the Bank of England, or, or what bank does he save with? They were always mocking these badges. That's why I never wore one. Then the Jesus movement came, and in the Jesus movement, they had these really cool, they were cool for the period, that is, stickers. You got a whole, you got this whole roll of stickers, and you went round sticking these stickers on people's lapels or sweaters. Whether they wanted them or not, you went up to them in the street, and you stuck a sticker on them, and the sticker said, smile, God loves you. It was a great idea. It offended most of the population of Glasgow because Glasgow is not the kind of town where, frankly, they're waiting for you to go up and stick anything on them. They're liable to stick something on you, and it's shaped roughly the size of my fist. Or the Glasgow Kiss, as it's known, which is the, the, uh, the um, movement of the forehead of one person towards the nose of another. That's called the Glasgow kiss, and it's devastating in its effects. So it didn't go down very well. Anyway, I don't know why I told you that. I told you that because the question is, what is the badge of a Christian? Jesus will answer it in this passage, but we're not going to get there too quickly. You need to see that it doesn't just arrive, as it were, out of thin air. It is built in to the unfolding story that we have here about Jesus. The answer, of course, is the answer of love. Love is the great thing that he wants to see. But you, if I just said that, you'd all go home thinking, well, fuzzy wuzzies, you know, kind of soft, floppy, sentimental, whatever. 
Christians use that kind of language and then they usually contradict it in the way they treat one another. Isn't, it? Isn't that the idea that people get? But if you look at it in its context, let's look at this passage we read together. <clears throat> From verse 31 really down to verse 35. <clears throat> I was going to just jump, jump over this and then I came back to look at it. And it, it seemed to me that in this little passage, the focus is now on Jesus and on Jesus alone. Just before this, the focus has been moving around. It's been on Jesus and on Peter and then latterly on <clears throat> Judas. And uh, we, we have been sensing as we've been studying John 13 that the, the upper room where these followers of Jesus are on this last night is tense. The tension is becoming almost unbearable. They know something is afoot. They know that there, that there is a movement to get Jesus. They know that it's going to happen. He, he's been telling them that. And in fact, he's just announced to them that one of them is going to betray him. And so there's, there's a real mood of tension amongst the people. And Judas then leaves. And for some reason, none of them suspect him. That's very interesting, isn't it? That as far as the band were concerned, Judas was one of the, one of the group. He was uh, respected. He had the purse. He was the treasurer. He leaves. Nobody suspects it's Judas. But now that he is gone, the focus becomes much more on Jesus himself. And specifically in this little section, the focus is on Jesus and his glory on Jesus and his departure, and on Jesus and his love. And we need, to, we need to see the progression before we get to talk about that love. The focus is on Jesus and his glory. Judas leaves. And Judas leaving initiates the real work of that night because it's only when Judas leaves that Jesus gets up close, personal, and intimate in talking to his disciples. It's only once Judas has gone that the actual machinery of arrest and trial and execution is set in motion, and only after he leaves that Jesus sets about giving what we call this farewell discourse to his disciples. In some ways, that had to happen that way. Judas is, as we've seen, a false brother. It isn't just that he is a non-Christian, an unbeliever. No, he has been part of the group. He's been one of the apostolic band. He's been a visible member of the little church of Jesus. But he has been a false brother, a treacherous brother, he, his presence amongst them was, a, was to use the old-fashioned language, a spot on their love feast, a, a scandal in the family. But now, now he's gone. And so Jesus can speak more clearly, more explicitly, more personally to his people. And he speaks First of all, about his glory. You can see that. When he had gone out, you see the connection. When he had gone out, Jesus said, 
Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. He picks up this word glory. It's not a word we use much uh, today. Uh, I think it's one of those words that, that gets used among Christians, and it means absolutely zero to them as well as to somebody who's here tonight who isn't a Christian. Glory is sometimes used of majesty, uh, luminosity, that, that is the bright shining of the sun, the sun in all its glory. Sometimes it, we, it makes us think of transcendence, something that is bigger, greater, beyond anything we can comprehend. Sometimes glory uh, can be used of eternity, spending eternal life in glory. Christians will often refer to eternal life as being in glory. But glory is something God creates to communicate to us. It's made for us. Glory is something God creates in order to communicate with us humans something of who he is in himself. So he creates the universe. The more we find out about the universe, the bigger and bigger and bigger the universe becomes. We can't fathom it. We can't compute the size of the universe. But God creates the universe this big and this great in order to communicate to us something of himself, his intrinsic, eternal power and Godhead, the sheer power and size and greatness and strength of God is communicated by the universe around us. When he was communicating with Israel, he would sometimes come and he would descend upon a mountain and there would be earthquakes and there would be bright lights and there would be all kinds of noise and flashing lights and so on in order to communicate something of the distance, the, the great distance that there is between humans and God. The glory tells us something of the inner nature of the invisible God. God is invisible. So he creates something visible whereby you may see something of his nature.